What's up, folks? On today's podcast, we're going to be doing the people section, how to vet people who are doing syndication deals as a passive investor. But before that, we've got a several announcements here. Some of you have asked me for other resources in helping you predict where the interest rates are going. Maybe you guys have some side bets with your friends. I've talked about the Chantham Financial Curve. Another great resource out there is the cmegroup.com. Now, what these guys do is they put on a chart the percent chances of where the interest rates will be in some set point in the future. Now, the the latest and greatest is that we'll have a 40% chance of a rate cut in March Fed meeting and almost 100% chance that we'll get a cut by May meeting this year. But obviously, this is changing at the moment. This is always ever-changing. So add that cmegroup.com to your bookmarks, as I do. I check it all the time. Now, before we get going with today's podcast, a topic is this concept of risk. Now, many of our investors are getting started in syndications and private placements, especially after owning rental properties, which can be quite cumbersome, which are realizing getting better returns in the long run. 2022-2023 was a correction year. And if you're a new investor, it's probably one of the best times to get in. But out of the last 12 years that I've been investing, had a pretty good bull run up to this point. And just like the stock market, stock market goes up a lot slower and comes down a lot quicker. But esoterically, discussing more of this concept of risk, when you go into the unknown and you start to invest in investments off the traditional Wall Street shelf, if you're able to diversify, you're more than likely to get higher returns and also unlocks the tax benefits associated with this. Last podcast, we did a big Q&A and I actually just came back from Atlanta this past weekend where I uncovered a lot of great strategies for higher net worth investors above five to $10 million net worth, which probably put into the e-course for you. If you guys want access to that before it gets locked up, you can go to thewealthelevator.com slash club to get access to that. But getting back to risk, sorry, one of the saddest things I think is the next generation will never feel what it feels like to go out into the unknown in search of higher alpha. And if you don't know what alpha is, essentially a term meaning that you're beating the market, you're beating the other folks out there. And I was thinking about this the other day, and go with me here. In a way, getting married, being in relationships, from some guys' perspectives, and I'm not saying that I believe this, some guys will say it's 50% chance of getting divorced, take your money, and just a lot of heartache in the future. That's definitely a very negative doom and gloom outlook. But I keep coming back to, especially if you're, you want kids, which now that I have a two going on three-year-old, I'm definitely seeing the, the dividends of that and why on the surface, when you have sleepless nights and trying to get a two-year-old to brush and floss their teeth, you can see why people do it for a lot of the intangible benefits and memories that come of it. And in a way, marriage is like the same thing too. On the surface, again, I don't want to offend anybody here. If offended, maybe go listen to another podcast. And these are just some of the internal analysis I've been having in my head that in a way, marriage is like playing life with leverage. Sure, things can happen, but in most cases, it kind of amplifies the experiential of life. Now, again, I'm not putting my ideals on you out there. You may have a totally different outlook and I totally respect that. But I'm just speaking from my own experience here. When I was single and I was traveling the country as a junior engineer in my 20s, 
I can remember, you know, several instances when I would be traveling from Texas to Montana and you maybe pull up a, a view of the map, but I would travel through South Dakota and I didn't stop. I didn't even want to stop at a place like Mount Rushmore and see the national monuments. Why? I was just, maybe I had my head down, wanting to save money. I had the time, but without somebody to share it with, a spouse or a friend, to me, that's just, I, I would rather just get from point A to B, get to Montana and go in my room and stay warm in the 20 degree weather up there. And it, likewise, in this last weekend, I was in Atlanta for the weekend doing a tax seminar, a great seminar. And I, some of you guys actually met, had some dinner with, that was cool seeing some of you who are investors with us. But other than that, I just stayed in the hotel. I didn't really feel like going to the CNN headquarters, the Coke museum. It's probably too cold for the zoo. When I'm by myself, I tend to not do things as much. And maybe I, I, I haven't quite formulated ahead why, but maybe it's because without that experiential experience with a spouse or another friend there, it just for me, I just don't feel like it's worth paying money for the experience or the time. Now, maybe I need to learn on that and work on that as a person. But I think that's where bringing it back to investments, you have to obviously find deals and projects that sure, you're going to take a little bit more risk. But when the risk reward profile is there, that makes it more than warranted. And then of course, you protect yourself by diversifying yourself over different type of projects and different time horizons too. And I think some investors, they like the single asset LLC deals. But quite frankly, for most of our investors in less than eight to 10 deals, in my opinion, you're not getting that diversification. I'm personally in 80, 100 K1s. I'm pretty diversified and I've been investing for quite a while. And I'm just speaking to the newer investors who maybe have less than a quarter million deployed. I get it. You want to look for that single asset LLC deal so you can have some pride of ownership. Maybe look at more diversified funds. And that's something that we're going to be working on here in the near future, putting together projects in more of that diversified pool, as opposed to putting investors on the spot where you have to pick the specific asset and the pressure that comes along with it. But with that, enjoy the show. Check this out on the YouTube channel. A lot of the the visuals will be there available for you too. Third section of the syndication e-course, I break this down into two very different parts. First, the people section, which we're going to be talking about today, vetting people. And then part two is the number section, which we'll go through next month. Very different type of due diligence. And maybe this is more qualitative than quantitative. If you guys have any questions, type in the Q&A box. Let's start off some of the terminology first. When you guys invest in a syndication deal, there is the general partnership group and there are the passive investors, the LPs of you guys. There is always some confusion over what is the general partner? A lot of names out there for this person. Some people call them sponsors, co-sponsors, lead syndicators, operators, deal sponsors. They all mean pretty much the same thing, although the devil's in the details. The trouble is sometimes these words are thrown around really loosely by the people promoting the deal, the general partnership. Anybody in the general partnership can be a sponsor, meaning that 
you don't have to be the main guy. There's a lot of these like capital raisers where they get a lot of new people who start in this business don't have the net worth to be able to qualify for the debt because you need to have a net worth and liquidity equal to the loan size. So if you're going after a $30 million loan, you need to have three guys that are $10 million net worth. Or when a lot of people start, I've seen general partnership groups as big as like 12 people where each guy is like $2 million through net worth to get a deal done. They do it mostly like that because it's maybe not as much as the net worth qualifications for the loan, but to raise the capital, to bring in passive investors into the deal. Although a long time ago, been there, done that, these large general partnership groups like that, they say that it's like a big team, but man, is it just a lot of dead weight and nobody's really accountable within those large partnership groups. It's just a means of everybody raising maybe half a million dollars, million dollars each to come into the deal, which technically from an SEC perspective is illegal because you're not supposed to be you know, just raising capital for a deal. There needs to be some active management involved. But that's where this terminology of sponsor and somebody says, yeah, co-sponsoring somewhat. What are you doing? What's your role? Are you the operator? Are you raising capital for the deal? Or are you signing on the debt? Really, the only way to figure this out is to ask and ask the right way too. So in this world, a lot of these deals are done through 506C and 506B. It's legal. It's all following the mandate of SE raising money from passive individual investors. As far as like audits, because it falls under a certain size and exemption, there is no not really a need for a third-party audit on these types of arrangements. And this is why, and I put that out there first, because this is why it's super important to invest with people you trust. I, I always say, and, and this is probably a fault of mine, I work with people Maybe they're not the best people, but you know what? I trust them. And I've been burned enough to know that at the end of the day, I would at least want to work with people who got my back, are going to do the right, honest thing for investors. And at the end of the day, we'll take our chances on the operation of the investment. When I first started to come into this world, I had 11 rental properties in 2015. I knew a thing or two about real estate investing. But when you start to get into this world, it's all the people you interact with. And I, I met a lot of people, but until you get into bed with people, you don't know. One of the first partnerships I got into, the guy ended up basically stealing money, taking materials from the job site into other projects, had to learn what was in this whole PPM thing to remove them from the general partnership and then run the deal myself. But that was, that left the sting. And that is actually, that was the second time I lost money. I talk about a lot. The very first time I went into a deal that as a passive investor, it's on the website at thewealthelevator.com slash fail, but gave my money to an operator. And then what I learned and what from people told me is the guy was like a constant scam artist where he just did this again and again, took people's money, kept the investment going, but then slowly the investment would fall apart. And then that was when he would just rinse, wash, repeat, do it again. So if you can imagine this where my headspace was at very early on, which is why maybe I've gravitated more towards playing it safe from a relationship standpoint. But 
I think as an investor, you need to figure out what is your investment rubric. And part of that is the honesty of the people. Part of this also goes down to there's a lot of things that you're just never going to see from an LP perspective, let alone what happens month after month. The general partnership supposedly signing up for fiduciary responsibility to do the best thing with your money and to balance being aggressive with the business plan while also being safe with the business plan so you don't lose the asset and do what's best for the long-term longevity of the investment. And a lot of this puts a lot into faith into a person to not only have be competent, but also to have your best interests in align. There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes and a lot of things that happen right before your eyes. Like I, I hear a lot of things from other general partners, syndicators out there where they say one thing, but I being a syndicator operator myself know that probably was a different story going there. I think I talk a lot about like one good example of that is deal prefs, like generally investors like deals with preferred rate returns. Sometimes they work against LPs. A general partner falls behind on the pref. When is the general partner going to get paid? It might make sense to just exit a deal early and therefore just paying off the investors partially of the pref. But at the end of the day, the general partner wasn't going to make any money out of the deal. Sure that that payment scheme created that type of situation, but that's not the right thing to do. Right. And, and that's why we try to operate, or at least personally, I try to operate from a place of honor, do, do the right thing so you can sleep at night and invest the funds just like it was your own. Because yeah, heck, we get, no, we have skin in the game too. Right. But I'll leave it that. So that's where, you know, people first. And, you know, for a moment here, because this is the people section after all, Let's just assume that you went in with the strategy where a lot of people do talk about the strategy of vetting the horse jockey, not the horse. So the horse jockey is the pe person operating the deal in this respect. And if you just focused for once on just doing your due diligence on the person, their track record, what other investors have said about them, their street reputation. I, I think for new investors or especially investors who cannot underwrite, this might be the best path to go. And I think why oftentimes this is the, the advice that people are given or new investors are given. I, on the other hand, when I started into this syndication apartment investing side, I went down the path as an operator, underwriting hundreds of deals myself, a walking property, and I can take rent rolls and P&Ls and I can cut through the BS. And oftentimes interacting with the syndicator, the sponsor, the deal operator, whatever you want to call it, general partnership, it can be somewhat of a waste of time in my opinion, because they're going to tell you everything you're going to want to hear. A lot of times, if you're working with an operator who has done more than a billion dollars of deals, you're not going to be talking with the principal team or anybody who is actually going to be touching the asset. You're just going to be talking with the investor relations staff. So they're just going to be reading off a script, basically, or they're a trained salesman. When I first started to do this personally, I just didn't really want to waste time with talking to people when I do my due diligence as an investor. And I just went straight for the numbers. I ran it and I tried to figure out what were some of the assumptions that were used in the deal. And a lot of these assumptions I take, go through in detail in the part two, the numbers section, such as what are they using for 
their reversion cap rate? What are they using for full occupancy? Are they assuming that deal is going to be 95% occupied or 92% occupied with 3% of bad collections in there? Another one would be, what are they assuming that the rents are going to increase year after year? Some would say 3 to 5% is very aggressive, and they might be doing that just to fudge their numbers so that they can put on the front page that we're going to double your money in five years. So that was where I was doing my personal checks. And then from there, the people who were using the right assumptions, then I went and wasted my time and talked to them. That was my original process. Now, most investors don't have that underwriting background. And it's probably going to be coming to this section first. I probably should have started out with this first. I think as an investor, this is the hard part, right? You're trying to find and do your due diligence on a sea of people where you don't have that underwriting background. You might have owned a rental property or two, but this is a very different game you're getting into. One paradigm I want to introduce to people is there's a spectrum of operators in terms of experience here. So on one side, you have very experienced operators who are more on the institutional side. So I would probably say if a company has three, four, five billion dollars of assets under ownership or past experience, they would probably be what I would call an institutional operator. And in these institutional operators, very reliable, of course, people may talk about them. The downsides are their acquisition fees may be higher than three, four, five, six percent. Their investor splits are very low. You might be looking at like a 50-50 split or 60-40 split or worse, um, or may have some kind of complicated waterfall strategy where basically they take most of the profits as the deal does even better. So some of my clients that are you know, in the family office group that are like maybe four to five million dollars net worth and above. It may be a good idea for them to go in with a bunch of institutional type of operators for reliability. You're certainly not going to double your money in five years. You're probably going to be more in the scope of doubling your money in 10 years. But when you have that type of net worth, as you could imagine, you don't really need to have those higher returns. You're willing to trade off returns for reliability. Also on these runs, a lot of the minimum investments for institutional operators are going to be somewhere in the Quarter million would be pretty rare, but I would say half a million to $2 million minimum investments or greater, which again, I would say for most investors within our ecosystem, definitely would violate that 5-10% rule I have, never having more than 5% tens of your network concentrated in any one deal. Um, of course, funds that are diversified, you might be able to bend that rule a little bit about talking individual deals we're investing in an apartment at 123 Main Street or XYZ development here. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have fake it till you make it. And that's the basically what this section is trying to help you do your detective work to protect yourself against. We were there at one time. Today, we've got over 2 billion deals under our belt, 65, 60 plus projects, 10,000 units, all as general partner. Right. That's where you got to sometimes people fudge that. Yeah, yeah I'm a passive investor in 5,000 deals. My opinion, that doesn't count for anything. You got to be the general partner and you got to be the operating entity. Because again, there's some people that will just raise quarter million dollars for a $200 million deal because they're one of these 12-headed general partnership groups that daisy chaining a deal around. And now they raise quarter million dollars for that deal. And now they put it on the track record. 
So that's where investors need to realize like, all right, who am I working with? A large institution or kind of a fake it to make it operator who's under $1 billion of assets under ownership. For us, like when we went over that $1 threshold in 2020, we really started to hire ourselves out on the asset management side, hiring people who've been property managers for a decade plus, who've worked in the trenches for a long time, and really start to hire people that were better than us. And that was where we relieved ourselves off of the weekly property management calls on all the assets and really put the right people in the right seat. Going back to, I, I mentioned that the minimum fees, the minimum investments for the institutional guys are half a million, million dollars plus. For the new guys getting started, I'd see people doing as low as $25,000. But I would probably caution LPs, like if any operator is willing to take less than 50 grand, I would really caution and probably run because that's a sign that they're just probably just desperate for cash. I'll say when we first started, we would do that. We'd bring people in for 30 grand minimums. But again, totally regret doing that because those investors doing that are typically not accredited and or very difficult from the investor relations side. And but that's that was us when we first started, right? We would buy a lot of these smaller class C 50 units and then stepped up from there as the years went by. But that's a spectrum. And I think have that in mind as we start to really go more and more into these aspects of the people section here. Question A, a baseline for comparing fees. Every syndication argues that their fees are reasonable and competitive. How can an LP tell? I think this is very common. And I think this is what something that a lot of new investors fixate on and will spend a lot of time on because this is the only thing that is somewhat objective. It's like you're hanging out with your buddy and you guys both have kids and it's, hey, how's your kid doing? What would you say? Scott is in the third grade. He's got a 3.4 GPA. Seems to be better at reading than that. Things that that's what people will say in that situation, right? But you never really get down to how are they, right? Like how is the deal is what I'm trying to say. And I think when you get around people like our family office group, like you have a lot of these types of conversations and I'm going to actually put up this one slide here that I think is very pertinent. This obviously coming from a very newbie form here. But this is the type of things I think a lot of new investors who are, again, are fixating are a little bit of the wrong stuff, right? Which is the fee profile. He, the big three in terms of, but I'll go through it because I think at, at first you have to understand it, then understand what small importance it has in the big scheme of things. Meaning the fees are the fees, but how does the deal work? If the fees are super low and the splits are super high, the deal sucks because it's poorly underwritten and you have crappy operators, what difference does it make, right? Again, most unsophisticated investors focus in on the wrong things, which is what we're going to be talking about right here. And they don't have any insight on the big picture stuff. But I get it. If you're new at this stuff and you can't really vet people and track records and you don't have a pure network of other purely passive investors around you, then what I'm showing on the screen now is probably what you're going to focus on in the back of your head is, yeah, I agree, but this is all I have to work with it. So let's, for now, let's just work on this, right? So the big three, and I think this isn't actually the part two of the number section. It goes into detail. So check out on it later. There are three big fees 
which are acquisition fees, asset management fees, and the disposition fee, which is the exit fee at the end. There's also the, the split. That's actually, I would say, the fourth, the four big ones. That's actually the biggest one, the split, right? But I'll go in order, right? The acquisition fee is the biggest one typically, and that's where sponsors will typically throw a bunch of their compensation in there. It's off the purchase price typically, and it ranges from like about one to three percent. So a new investor here will be like, oh, a acquisition fee, one percent. That's on the low end that Lane said. All right, cool. Awesome. Uh, but it's not that simple. So sometimes you may have these BS fees like the mortgage guarantee fee, financial services fee, some other fee. So this is a game that's being played. Most unsophisticated investors, they know enough to know what is the acquisition fee and ask the question. So what do you do in this charade game, but you make other fees up that are on the side, but all these things are essentially acquisition fees. So in this particular one, the way I would do it is I would, in my head, I would just add this all up, but now you're looking at 7% acquisition fee, which is really, really freaking high. To do this right, you have to figure out, you have to add up all these fees and then the split at the end, if the deal goes to plan and see what is the compensation of the general partner per the passive investor. That's really the only way of doing it. If you have a super high acquisition fee, but there's no split, then I would probably say it's what's wrong with it, right? You either took it from here or took it from there, right? The GP has to get paid here, guys. Like no mistake, but I, I get it. Like it matters, but what I'm trying to say, and I'm just saying this over and over again, like it's more, how is the deal underwritten? If they're saying they're going to double your money in five years, even though it's, you know, obviously not a promise, things happen. That's the way that I roll as an investor. It's like, all right, they perform out this, whatever their splits and fees are, it's inclusive of all, all that. And that's how typically deals are ran or performers are put together in where it takes into account all the fees in there to make it easy for investors. And it's just, yeah, let's, this is probably one out of 30 of my deals or a hundred of my deals that I'm in. And this is just a way for me to see if my expectations are met as an investor. And if it works out, I'll invest again more. If it doesn't, I may, may decide not to do any more deals with you guys. But the way I look at it, and this may be a rare perspective, especially for new investors is, Whatever the deal sponsors get, I don't care. All I care is what was my return on investment for myself. Like I said, a lot of institutional investors have high fee structures. I don't care. If you want to double your money in 10 years, 10% a year, and you're happy with that, then who cares, right? After all, you're a passive investor. You're not doing anything. Your LP and money is somewhat of a commodity if you think about it. But let me back up here. So I talked about acquisition fee and again, you're probably going to have to, especially in a high fee sponsor, add in all these extra garbage fees in there to get to the real number. The The second one that I mentioned was your asset management fee. And this one, I wouldn't really worry too much about because this is usually a percentage off of the income being made. Again, between the range of one to 3% is pretty customary. And because it's not off the purchase price, it's more off of the income the income dwarfs that of the purchase price. And the asset management fee, it's supposed to be used for the general partner to do their checkups on the team. They have staff, maybe a bookkeeper. Like we have asset management 
teams that oversee the property management. This is above and beyond the property management, right? This is the role of the manager. It's supposed to pay for sort of inconsequentials or expenses, right? It's not a huge amount when you really look at it. It may, in a large deal, may account for 20, 40 grand a year, which you may see as a big number, but it really isn't when you're running a real company. You may dedicate half a full-time employee to managing this one deal. This is where some investors will be like, that's BS, right? That's why you're getting a split at the end. But again, I, I would say hold off on developing any types of different affinities towards certain things until you get to a point where you've seen a dozen deals or have invested in a few of them already. And then the, the third fee that you'll see a lot is this distribution fee, which again, one to three percent is the normal customary range. And again, this is a large one because it's off the purchase price typically. This one's a little bit different, right? 5%, which exceeds my 1% to 3%. But it, this one's off the difference between the purchase price and the eventual sales price. So that's a lot smaller. I don't know. Maybe you can do the math at home. But I think a maybe 5% of difference between purchase price and eventual sales price is probably a lot smaller than 1.5% off the entire sales price. I don't know. It depends on how much they make, right? In the deal, of course. But this is where things get a little tricky and... A lot in this world of passive investing in these types of deals, not all these deals are arranging apples to apples. And if you download my syndication due diligence checklist, you'll probably be inundated with so much stuff that you've never thought about. And I very highlight in there, these are just questions. Do not ask the, all the questions. It is ridiculous if you ask all these questions. The general partner will probably never want you to invest with them because they'll know what a pain you are. But these are just things to be aware of. But to understand the granular things, but then to zoom out, guys, essentially the arrangement, or again, this is just my opinion, the arrangement is the general partner is going to take your money and give you a certain return. And that's the performa. And then at the end of the deal, years later, hopefully they've hit your expectations and you have the opportunity to come back and invest with them again. And that's your choice. Now, regardless of all of these fees and splits that happen, great to, to learn about it now and understand it. And it's always fun to talk to other passive investors about it because it makes you sound cool because you know what is the normals and then you can bad talk a certain deal because it's out of compliance. You say, oh, distribution fee at 5%, that's BS. That's the one you get the purchase price for the eventual sales price, which isn't that much when you really think about it. But that's where I'm saying like, have a big picture yeah, we so we talked about mortgage guarantee, financial services fee, again, lump that in with position fees. And then, of course, this is the big one, the split, right? Most deals out there, they operate within a range. And again, going back to that spectrum that I was talking about of new operators, new operators are desperate to do deals. A lot of the people I knew that are big time operators now, they always talk about the first several deals that they did at a 90-10 split or 80-20 split where the vast majority went to passive investors and it was a way for them to build their track record. And most times, once people do maybe a dozen deals, they get to this 70-30 split. Of course, a 70-30 split with a 5% acquisition fee is vastly different than a 70-30 split with a 1% acquisition fee. Just saying. Then you get to this world of institutional operators where you have maybe a 65-35 split here or a, a split where 
it's maybe 50-50 after you've gotten your initial capital back. And now we're introducing different waterfalls, different hurdles, different payment plans as the deal kind of goes along. Normally, the general partner will structure, if they do some sort of waterfall structure, if the deal really outperforms, they take that upside. I never really liked that as a passive LP. And that's why we don't really do those types of arrangements. I like it when it's just a straight split, 70-30 split, for example, where you know, maybe the deal doesn't go as well. GP's 30%, LP's get sent. But I don't want to discount myself as a passive investor getting the upside. So that's why I prefer the deal gets knocked out of park. Say we triple our money in a few years. I think it's fair for the equal upside. But whatever it is, whatever it is, right? You're, like, you're not making the terms as a passive investor. The deal is the deal from the general partnership. Obviously, they're putting out a scheme where they know that they can raise the money because they can't really change it after the fact unless they want to pay another 20 grand and amend the PPM or get a new PPM. So they're always going to market with a certain fee and split scheme to be competitive out there and to get investors strike that balance. There are a handful of operators that a lot of people will talk about on message boards and where people don't really know what they're talking about, but they say the same person over and over again. And a lot of these guys will have very bad LP splits. And more importantly, they have really high acquisition fees. Again, when you add it all up, it's 5% plus. And again, I'm not a guy who says, I'm not going to invest on a high acquisition fee number deal. But I do know that by taking that big chunk of money out, it takes a lot of the profits away from passive investors at the end. The deal has to really go well for the passive investor to make money. We'll move on. Unless anybody has any questions here, get back to the e-course. All right, back to the e-course. I did want to answer that question because it does come up in the numbers section. But the reason why I want to bring it up is because it alludes to who are you working with on this, this spectrum. Obviously, those, that fee structure that we looked at was very high and it was probably indicative of more each institutional type of operator. Oh, another example I'll give, like for investors who used to be in buying turnkey rentals, there are turnkey operators out there that have a big, good reputation on the streets. People talk about them a lot, right? But a lot of these guys will overcharge investors, be 20, 30 grand, and charge a $90,000 property and sell it for 122 investors. I don't know how investors are really going to make it out at the end, but at least that turnkey rental is very stable and it's not some piece of junk. Just like I, I see some of you guys going with some of these like real fancy self-directed IRA companies, which are commodities, in my opinion, and really that different from each other. But you guys sign up for the with the, the cool salespeople and they have training portals and stuff like that. But it's, you guys are paying triple the price of what you should be paying. You know, I think it's important to understand that in this business, you're paying for that extra marketing fluff for the prestige. No different in syndications operators. I personally always, I think if it were my money, I want to invest with somebody who's like a middle market operator, somebody who's done at least $1 billion, yet they are not a big, huge institution charging people 4%, 5%, 6% plus acquisition fees. And at the end of the day, getting that better than doubling my money in seven to 10 years return profile. But that's up to you. That's that's depends on how kind of investor you want to be. But as far as like doing your due diligence on people, like we've talked about this on the podcast in the, in the past, 
Some people talk about doing background checks on people. I suppose you could do that. I think you do, you do need the social security number of the person, which I, I wouldn't give out my social security number to anybody. But what people have said in the past, and we've had law enforcers mentioned that you know, just doing a good old fashioned Google search on people is, is a great way to do, start doing your due diligence. And, and this is where I'll bring in my experience with this. This is more working with people from a general partnership perspective. I jump into bed with people. We do deals. We operate deals together and. I check all the boxes and I think you know where this story is going. Checking all the boxes, get along, somewhat alignment and values, complementary skill sets. That's it. When I get into a deal with somebody, you don't know what's going to happen until you start working with them. And in the one case I'm thinking about, because again, it's happened several times, they just don't do what they say they're going to do. And like I mentioned, one of these times in particular, they actually were doing nefarious activities that had to put a stop to. This is where I learned the lesson though. You want to work with people who've done it before. And I think maybe that's worth searching for a track record. But again, where are you getting this information from? Are you getting it from them? That's useless, right? They can just make up whatever, put a whatever on a pitch sheet or a deck or people will pass out like these PFs of track records. Who the hell knows, right? Who the hell knows if they even own that asset? None of them got those types of returns. And this is where... The gold standard of referrals and vetting is having a personal relationship with somebody who's actually invested with them in the past and had a positive experience. And this is a funny thing. And we try to not have these types of people come to our groups and our meetings. You have passive investors who just talk a big game and they're like, yeah, so-and-so's good because they've seen them on the website or they have a lot of Facebook followers. Just that, and these people say this kind of stuff just to make themselves look cool. Like in high school where Jerry was the popular kid, Jerry was a jerk, but everybody else says, Jerry's cool. Jerry's cool. Jerry's my guy. It's the same thing. And this is where I tell investors like, all right, did somebody actually invest with Jerry in the past? Now to get that information, now you're going to need to verify your referral source. And this is where I'm very clear for the members in our family office group. Right? Don't come into the family office group and just start firing off questions like who you invested with, who's stolen your money, who's your CPA. Come in, build real relationships with people. Don't talk about investing. Just get to know people, help people, add value to conversations. And then that stuff will naturally come through over time. It never should happen where people are like, all right, show me your spreadsheet. I'll show you mine, who you've been working with. Yeah, I just think that's a little sloppy. And when people do that within our organization, I think people get a little chicken skin that this person asking me this is just an asshole who's just trying to get the goods. And once I tell them who I've worked with in the past, I'd never see this person again because they just take. So I, I say that if you, if you haven't made it out to one of our kind of test drive events to meet myself, more importantly, meet other people, we brief people coming in, just keep this in mind because there's a lot of like internet forms where people will do this and it's a lot harder to get people's intentions. Does this person want to build a relationship with me and my family and so we can grow our networks together as passive investor buddies decades in the future? Or is this person just coming in, going to take and then they go back to their hole and I never see them again? That said, if you're like that, it is what it is. I get it. A lot of people are in this phase of putting their own oxygen mask on. Not many people, once you start to invest and you get a little bit of success, you start to get into a headspace where, you know, life's more than just getting your net worth to two, four, five million dollars. 
it's the people you journeyed along the way with. And this investing thing, building your net worth became just the means to meet people who you have common interests with and more importantly, common values, right? Building a family legacy. And I think that's what we personify within the family office group, or at least the culture that we try to create there and the people we try to keep there. But this, I'll get off my soapbox on this, but this is where investors need to be careful how they interact with each other, but you work towards this. And I think this is daunting when you come in because I was there at one time. I didn't know any accredited investors. Nobody in my family had a million dollar net worth or greater. And I just had to go out there blindly and I had to start somewhere, right? Who's a good operator to work with and who's a bad one so I can start to compare the two. So this next aspect probably won't help you, but we spent some time on the sponsor's website. It's, this is really hard because the institutional investors, if you look at them, like you go to Blackstone or all these, Invesco is a big one. These are institutional operators and their websites are very generic. Yeah, you have the team section, you have the about section. Sometimes there's no sections to go to. It's just one page with the contact information. It looks really sleek and cool, right? Kind of dark, mysterious, because there's not really too much information out there. But that's our typical institutional operator webpage. And the difficult thing is it makes it very easy for somebody who's just getting started to just copy the damn thing and to look like an institution. And again, this is where people are able to fake it to the make it where they haven't done anything or if maybe they've done 30 million worth of deals, which isn't anything. Like they said, until you hit a billion dollars, it's not much. It's just a newbie. So it makes them look like into an institutional operator. Obviously, I do things differently because I've been in bad deals before. I know things aren't all sunshine and rainbows. When you're in more than a billion dollars, $2 billion, $3 billion of deals, things go wrong. And I just don't want to attract the investors and have it seem like I'm just tricking you into some deals. So I'm very much on the, hey, come in eyes wide open. In every investment, there is risk. But again, most people out there are in this, we just need to get raised $2 million to close this deal phase. And I know that because I was there at one time. So spending some time on the, their websites is a waste of time, in my opinion. And then you review the marketing material, Here's some types of very common talked about scams that happened in the past that had a very high profile person leading it. And then it went down, the operation went down. And then like quick list of red, some red flags here. Something I use to, to figure out who am I going to work with on the general partnership level. I normally like to work with people who had a decent amount of net worth. Not only does it help us get apply for loans, but not saying net worth is everything, but it shows that you were able to make some money but pass. You're not just a young guy who doesn't have a job. And then that kind of goes into college education. And I like to see people working for a Fortune 500 company, professional setting. That's where I personally came from. And this is something for like my kids, right? If they were to take over the family business, I want them to work for a Fortune 500 company and get promoted at least twice before a company working back for the, comp for the family business. That's a general rule I've adopted talking to a lot of my colleagues in family-owned businesses like that. But you don't need to be a genius to be an operator multifamily. But again, looking for the sign, the breadcrumbs of success. Some people say, I never had a capital call, never lost investor money. That's great. But like, how many deals have they done? Things are going to happen. Black swan events happen. And I think that's where, at least for me, where I put 
precedence more on is when you have those bad times and you are going to lose money regardless, what is it that the general partnership does to keep fighting and to put investors first out of honor and responsibility and fiduciary at the very least? That's more important to me as an investor. One thing you'll see a lot of newbie operators or they're still working their day jobs. I'll tell you, when you start to take in other investor money in, you got to really do this full time. I think I had an overlap of about maybe a year and a half where I was still working my day job when I was doing this syndication stuff. I think that it's a smart way for them to do it, but I would probably have caution if you're the past investor investing with somebody who still has to clock in nine to five at their IE engineering job, accounting job. I would also, if, if that's the case, you know, you better know the guy personally before you as a syndicator. But even if they were, I would probably look for a pedigree of a job that's somewhat alignment in investing, either engineering where you actually have real construction knowledge, but definitely not like a job like a doctor or there's not really any overlay in terms of skill, expertise of operating deals and where they are professionally. Of course, doctors have great, tremendous academic aptitude, but not really the same skills are being used. People in IT, it's a little bit hit or miss. You could be like a project manager. And that's what a lot of this is, like project management, dealing with people, solving problems. There could be some alignment in there, but just a regular IT troubleshooter guy, really not too much overlay, I think. At the very least, some kind of professional. And this is now we're getting into a lot of the tricks that newer operators will play when they don't really have a track record. And I've been there. There are a lot of these multifamily guru camps out there. I'm sure it comes up on a lot of your guys' personal Facebook feeds or ads that pop up on your phone. But a lot of these groups will charge these guys $50,000 to come in and supposedly get the training. But the training is so-so. Really what they put a lot of emphasis on is attracting investor capital, putting on a nice fancy suit. As I always say, navy blazer, navy pants, and brown shoes. The look, right? The fake it till you make it. How do you present yourself on social media to look like a successful person and track capital? That's a lot of the curriculum that these groups will teach. A minority of it will be actually doing analysis on deals and very little at all is actually operating the debt investment. Most of the education is on the acquisition phase of analyzing the deal, but not the operation. Like we will learn a lot of the operation by going through just the early deals, right? A lot of the class C small properties, 50 units, that was where we learned a lot. And then learn enough to know that we should hire better people out who've been in the trenches a lot longer than us. And then now, as you're seeing us move more towards developments and get away from dealing with tenants. This is a joke, right? Everybody says, I'm so excited. I'm going into really excited about this next deal we're going to. So you're always excited. And so this is where like, I think when you start to see more than a dozen deals, you start to get a little jaded to this because your first five deals, or at least I can remember my first deals, like, wow, this is the best deal I've ever seen in my life. That's the best, the only deal you ever saw. So again, what I'm trying to do here is see if any trusted person in my network knows the operator. That's the big thing. Everybody's got the same look, not to stick out. Never invest with anybody who approaches you at a code pitch. That's I should never say never. As you guys know, I'm I'm not big on rules. I'm more big on guidelines. But if I were to have a rule, 
If anybody link reaches out to you on LinkedIn code, I got this deal. I would probably say that I would use my one rule on that. That's, I would stay away from that. I think a lot of things in the e-course are pretty straightforward. Maybe things you haven't thought about, but I'm trying to find the things that are a little bit more things to dig into a little bit more. Cause I think that's why you guys showed up here today. You could go into the S Edgar is what they call it and look up the person's past projects. I don't think that's going to show you any red flags, but at least you'd know somebody did a PPM for it and it's in there. A lot of like oil and gas deals, like I, as you guys know, good tax benefits, supposedly, right? Less and less these days. But as I've mentioned a lot, I stay away from oil and gas deals because a lot of those operators are just straight up cowboys and you don't know if you're going to get your money back on there. Not for the, the oil well not working, but a person stealing your money doing that. Because a lot of those guys won't even put PPM documents together. They may just copy and paste, take it from somebody else, copy and paste it into a Word document, change some of the names around, but barely do anything with it and just get it signed by you. It's messed up. That's the world that we live in, unfortunately. Past performance does not indicate future results. I've seen a couple waves, ups and downs, maybe three of them. Obviously nothing like 2008, right? Well, 223, this is probably the next biggest down one, but I've seen a little bit of micro ups and downs where some investor operators have come in, made some waves and then had some failures and we're seeing them again. And every time it, it comes down to this past performance, they always, oh, we hit 30% IRs, our expectations. To me, it's, man, what, you're putting like anything higher than 20% IR, it's like a head scratcher, especially on it's just a value add deal, shouldn't be that high. and it's just a sign of, yeah, you invested in some good years, like 2020, 2021 were all amazing years of unsustainable growth. And that's past performance is no indicator of future success. Now, one thing to keep in mind, they call this sponsor creep. So you might work with an operator who maybe did 20 deals and then you start investing with them. They do a good job and you go back to them. But at some point, they're going to become more institutional and start to you know, increase the acquisition fees, the splits. Hopefully it's because they're expanding their team. They're becoming ro more robust, able to carry out the business plan at a higher reliability rate. That's ideally where the money should go. But that, as an investor for you, you need to realize, is that really the way you want to invest? That said, if you start investing with the operator and your net worth is 2 million, and through those five years, 10 years, you're able to grow it to four or five million, you're already at end game, as I said. So I, I talk about this with my family office members. Like all you got to do is find a good group of folks and ride the wave in with them. Once you've got your network to a certain level, you've rolled the wave into shore with the operator group. The operator group is going to keep operating, but you may or may not want to invest with them in the future. But for you, you've gotten what you needed. You've ridden that wave into shore and now you don't, you can relax. You've made it. If you want to continue to stay out in the cold water and continue to try and catch waves and vet newer, younger operators, that's on you, man. Again, like, why are we doing this, right? To get to a certain net worth goal and then to pull back, go to cruise control. And this is where some of the other strategies that are higher on in the wealth elevator come into play. When you're net worth is over $10 million, you may not want to take as much chances in value add real estate. And you certainly may not want to invest with operators under a billion dollars of assets under ownership. It's just not worth it. 
So the sponsor creep is talking from a general partner standpoint, but I mentioned that because it helps you empathize and strategize your position long-term as an LP. Uh, One thing that we talk a lot about is this general partner sponsor just raising capital for a deal. I would just caution people that a lot of people just raise capital out there. We're seeing it now, right? Some people promoted a certain operating group and now the deals aren't going the greatest and they just say XYZ operator group sucks and they've separated themselves. I think that's a good idea for them because now, right, if the deal doesn't go as well and I'm the general partner who signed on the debt, now I have to answer to the bank, right? That's true skin in the game, signing on the debt. But alignment in the brands and the track records, I think is very important. And it's just, although financial planners get away with this all day long, right? Yeah, do this type of portfolio. And when it doesn't work out, hey, it looks like you and I, we just made the wrong decisions. No, sir. Like you created this portfolio for me. Like you need to have somewhat of accountability. But that's, that's where investing directly with the operating group, but trying to stay away from the sales guys, because at the end of the day, the sales guys are just getting paid money to raise capital for a deal. And. There's not really huge alignment there. And a lot of times, the reason why they have these types of arrangements where people raise capital from their networks and come into a deal is because the deal isn't very good in the first place. And I, these are called daisy chain deals. And I see them all the time. And they typically put out via LinkedIn, instant messages, direct messages like that, or through emails and email lists and stuff like that, because the deal isn't very good. So they need to rely on this sort of multi-level marketing type of strategy, which is also illegal for SEC. But hey, if you're starting out and you're a new operator, general partner, this is where a lot of people cut the corners with this stuff to get started. But what I would, yeah, be careful out there. You don't know who's out there. We do have like a wall of shame. In the family office group, we have a burn book in a way. There's all these people do all kinds of things to get investors, right? A lot of different aspects to learn and think about. Just take it with all with a grain of salt, is what I say here. Morning, Lane. Hey, good morning. I'll come off mute just to say hi, but I don't really have any specific questions at this time. Vetting new syndicators is always very challenging. I would agree. And that's where I'm, I say, take a more holistic approach, right? Hey, here are some things to be aware of, but as opposed to like running in and asking your operator all these questions, what I would say is just put in the back of your head, but then now have conversations with other purely passive accredited investors and just see what develops from there. Because again, like that's just my experience, right? Like I, but I think by going to the passive investor route, it does, it takes time, unfortunately, right? You have to work that angle, but that's what being a passive investor is all about. If you think about long-term jeopardy in the future, what you're working towards is having a good core group of guys that you trust that is close to your family. And more, more importantly, if something happened to you and your family would be in that peer group of other purely passive accredited investors who also do this stuff, and you're going to have to develop that. And I think this is where some investors who just don't play nice with others or super introverts who don't want to get out of their comfort zone are going to struggle with this. I'm an introvert. People are surprised by that, but I'm a huge introvert. My wife always says I'm like a completely different person when I start talking about money and finances. And maybe your spouses probably say the same thing about you folks here. But yeah, like my eyes are open. When I went to an event and I other accredited investors, I was like, wow, this is really fun. Like now, instead of fighting with 
my coworkers and family about taking money out of my HELOC or investing in properties I don't see, owning more than two rental properties or two syndication deals. And you find other people that are like doing it too. And it's super fun and super motivating. And I think this is where it turns into, at first it was a means to make money, get the financial independence, but it quickly changes to a hobby and a source of fun and enjoyment. 